From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Hello. I wanted to take a few minutes to welcome you to the abduction experience. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man. For the first time, individuals who suspect that they may be involved in this experience can relive some of the most common aspects of an abduction. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures and swarm and multiply in a drop of water. The door of your car is opened by the aliens. As they guide you out of the car and toward the saucer, you feel as though your body is almost weightless. Now what is it you want in your depths of your ignorance? What is it you want? There's no word to describe what you're feeling, but waiting seems to be about right. Because I'm talking to you on the radio, officially, in front of a microphone, you want to, and most likely will, believe everything I say. The sky is blue, the grass is green, and Keith Richards kicked his heroin habit by secretly getting all his blood transfused at a hospital in Switzerland in 1983. True, true, maybe true, you don't know. You don't know how you know. When an authoritative source reports on something that seems like it's just a little off, you find yourself listening a little more closely and teetering on the edge of disbelief. And that precipice of suspicion, that ambiguity, that is the playground in which we want to frolic today. Normally, of course, this is not an area well-traveled in the credible, sincere, fountain of unbiased news and information that is public radio. Except, of course, on April Fool's Day, when NPR's All Things Considered perennially fools millions of people with a fake news item. For instance, if you were to hear something just odd enough to furrow your brow, like a story about musical tones that could be frozen in ice cubes, or an online dating site for singles with STDs, you'd be thinking all at once, hmm, that doesn't seem quite right. But then again, there is a narrator, an interviewee, maybe an expert, vibrant field sound, and everyone's voices are so earnest and so... Deep. The story you are about to see is true. Names have been changed to protect the innocent truth. This has become the sound design of truth. Well, we are here to tell you that you can't believe everything you hear. And that is just the way we like it. Think Orson Welles. Think James Fry. Today, think ReSound. Here at the uh, Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustic Research, we're always looking for ways to integrate creative sound into the rhythms of everyday life. So for example, this summer, we have been developing a technique which permits us to freeze individual sounds, in this case, sounds from brass instruments into ice cubes, transforming uh, that familiar icon of the American kitchen, the ice tray, into a 
recording device. In theory, one could continue to add ice cubes and instruments, uh, but in this case, we're presenting a brass choir of six voices to offer a few moments of gentle harmony in an increasingly cacophonous world. From the Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustic Research, until next time, this is Gregory Whitehead. Ice Music by independent producer Gregory Whitehead of the Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustical Research. And yes, for those of you playing at home, the acronym there is LIAR. You don't know how you know, but you know that a small, round, metallic object has been implanted in your sinus cavity. We are returning you now to our New York studio. On today's show, in this genre of radio, the kind that blurs the line between fact and fiction, we have four masters of the form. You just heard Gregory Whitehead, and now we bring you Australian producer Eurydice Aroni. Eurydice likes to explore social issues and look for life's big truths. And in the tradition of the great satirists, she's found that one of the ways to get at the big truths is through a little fiction. Our next piece is called The Dribble-Down Effect. Robbie, peace of mind for parents and a lifelong buddy for your child. I like my Robbie. It's just over seven years since Australian workers were offered the choice to work child-free. To begin with, it was only single people or couples without children who were eligible for the Child-Free Workplace Agreement. The Federal Child-Free Workplace Agreement is to be extended to include parents after legislative changes today. Those who signed on were guaranteed better pay, flexible work hours and on-site support and entertainment services, extra perks which made the workplace a home away from home business productivity boomed, but workers with children have fallen further and further behind in their careers and finances. Now parents themselves are demanding the choice to work child-free. Legal funds manager Sue Morgan explains how it will work for her. Well, it's about priority. If I sign the child-free workplace agreement, then I'm saying that work will be my first priority. During certain hours, um, there'll be no contact with family during those hours and it'll be a breach of contract if, if I do make contact. I also agree to live separately from my family during the week so that I can maintain my energy levels. 
and I'll agree to take my holidays when it suits the company, not me. In exchange, I can earn a lot more money and I'm guaranteed a faster promotion. Sue Morgan. She currently supports her husband and four-year-old son working for a major Sydney corporation. Under proposed changes to the child-free workplace agreement, workers like Sue will have the choice to work child-free and reap the benefits already on offer to most Australians. Workers with kids who decide to sign on will be asked to live away from their families during the week and be expected to have no contact at all with them during work hours. The federal government is backing the changes. It's worried about Australia's rapidly declining birth rate, especially amongst the affluent middle class. Sources close to the government say senior ministers are now convinced the costs of childcare are driving would-be parents out of the market. Childcare charges have skyrocketed since full privatisation nearly a decade ago. And parents earn around 25% less on average than child-free workers. The government believes extending the child-free workplace agreement and encouraging greater use of robots in childcare centres will help to restore Australians' willingness to breed. Sue Morgan supports the government line. But that doesn't mean that I don't want the choice to have a decent Robbie at home as well. And I think the centre should have them too. I don't mean to replace the staff, but they can provide extra quality and consistency that children deserve. How did the child-free workplace come to replace the family-friendly workplace in such a short period of time? Economist and author Nancy Fulbray has been closely following developments in Australia. She says it's just another symptom of what she calls a global care crisis. The child-free workplace agreement was a real turning point for employers. They figured out that as long as um, just individual firms were implementing family-friendly policies, that those firms would be at kind of a competitive disadvantage. And they didn't like the idea that they should be bearing those costs and being penalised for them. And so they figured out they could just opt out and just require individual parents to completely assume the burden of the cost of rearing the next generation. So they offered this child-free option. It was just kind of a a convenient way of formalizing the arrangement. And of course, there was also a lot of support from child-free adults. Child-free adults felt that they were at a disadvantage, that they weren't getting the same flexibility or the same prerogatives as parents were, and they protested against it. They were the ones who argued that raising kids was just like raising pets. It was just a lifestyle choice. It was a a form of consumption and that there really shouldn't be any public support for it. So both of those factors really contributed to this movement to formalize a child-free work agreement. Economist Nancy Folbray, author of The Invisible Heart, a book which sets out to count the cost of caring in a world where everything is for sale. For the first time in modern economic history, adults without children now dominate the workplace. Raising a family is still popular amongst the poor and unemployed, but if you've got a decent job, then even a single child is seen as an indulgence. Mick and Sue Morgan are one middle-class couple who are sailing against the tide, but it wasn't until Mick reached his 40s and left work to complete his PhD that he decided that they'd enough time and money to even have a child. Oh, yes, a tipper truck. Someone at a party asked me 
what are children for? And um, I, I couldn't answer them. I, di I didn't really know any children. Um, my little boy was born and I thought, right, this is it. He, he just looked at me and I knew right away what children were for. Hope. That hope, yeah. They give you a second chance, really. The way I see it is that although we kind of react to this like, oh, isn't it awful that parents can just choose to live apart from their children, after a while I think we'll see that it might actually benefit families and not just financially. I mean, look at single parents. At first it was like, oh, family separating, isn't it terrible? I mean, if you were poor, it, it was pretty bad. But for people like us and our friends with a bit of money, what it meant was that they, they only had a, you know, a child every second weekend. So they ended up um, you know, having a much better social life and, and they had regular time off, you know, more so than you know, people with, living with partners and their kids around, you know? So they seem, you know, much more rejuvenated and, and they just had, you know, better time, quality time with their kids. I think it's very interesting what's going on in Australia right now, but it's not surprising when you consider how confused our uh, attitudes about the value of caring have been. What's happened is we've moved more and more towards a competitive market-based economy, and as a result, this penalty for devoting time to care has just kept on going up and up and up. It's as though the, the cost of altruism, in a sense, is going up over time. For instance, in the first decade of the 21st century, mums were just expected to work part-time to accommodate those care needs, even though this put them in a really, really weak position economically. You know, the assumption was that they were the ones who had always paid the cost and they were the ones who should continue to bear the cost of, of care, even though many other people in society as a whole was really benefiting. So what happened was that many women decided that they weren't going to take that on, that they would just uh, refuse that responsibility. And, of course, men were also reluctant to assume it because it was also very costly for them. So family responsibilities just became more and more uh, commodified. The first stage was bringing in low-wage workers from overseas to take on the job, and then as that became more difficult and costly, this development of this whole new robot industry as a result. Please, can you play with me, Mommy? You can't be there all the time. Yeah. Robbie, peace of mind for parents and a lifelong buddy for your child. Personalised Robbie play modules to suit your most precious investment. I like playing with my Robbie. Robbie, because you can't be there all the time. As childcare costs have risen, even high-end professional couples have struggled to keep up. And lobbying from the vocal and well-organised child-free movement has put an end to family allowance and other government subsidies to parents. But just as the childed were beginning to feel more and more alone, technology came to the rescue. <laughs> Robots never reached their potential as housework tools. Problems with fine motor skill coordination just couldn't be overcome. They could mop a floor, but only if you tidied away first. But when business refocused its robotic investment into surveillance and entertainment, they hit the jackpot. 
Here at Kids World, Kirk Gambino, the public face of children's robbies, explains some of their finer points. We have a huge range of Robbie care systems and what you pay for is what you get. But this is the basic starter model and it relays audiovisual back to the parent and more or less accompanies the child responding to his or her needs. Hi, want to play? Play is the predominant function and as any parent knows, repetitive play is one of the key development tools used by a child and it's very time consuming and wearing for a parent. How about a game? One of the beautiful things about Robbie's these days is that you and your child can program it daily, if you like, to mirror the current developmental needs or interests of the child. Say the baby is learning to talk. Well, the Robbie will imitate your baby's language practice just as you would. Yeah, give it a try. So this is the age control button just here. 18 months. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Morella Pitt and you're with Radio Eye on Radio National. Today we're looking at modern family life and the potential impact of the child-free workplace agreement on families. Sue and Mick Morgan are with us and we're discussing the growing use of robots in caring for children. Um, I think that my point of view on this is a bit old-fashioned. Um, See, I grew, I grew up in a, bit, a big family, like there were three of us, for God's sakes. Um, and although we were struggling, yeah, we, we had a basic model, Robbie. I remember when I first saw it, I thought it was a new kind of um, vacuum cleaner or something. I remember mum said, this is a new machine and it's going gonna, it's gonna to sit and watch you in the bath. And I was, I was so shocked by that thought that actually the first time I actually got into the bath with my socks on, and then that became like family folklore. We told that story every Christmas. Um, but it actually turned out to be pretty good, that first Robbie. No, um, not, not perfect, like later models. It had um, it'd go off sometimes and, and just like spin out of c- control, just like rotate around at the knee joints. And funnily enough, that made it seem more human. Uh, most of the Robbies these days are more or less indestructible and... And more human-like, but I tend to think uh, um, I tend to think this is bad, certainly for children in any case. You are such a hypocrite, Mick. I mean, this is from a man who selected his son's DNA for musical ability. Mm. Come on, Mick, you're prepared to use technology when it suits you. <clears throat> Robbies and domestic help in general have allowed men off the hook, I think. You talk to my women friends and they say without technology and house help, they would have been divorced by now. Why is that? Well, half my friends are married to stay-at-home dads like me. They say, yeah, that's great for the kids, but are you cleaning the toilet, darling? Hmm. Mick's just got this thing about Robbie's because you've been hanging around the daycare centre and they don't like them. They do not approve of them. Whether you like it or not, Robbie's and other surveillance systems are a feature of today's childcare, both at home and in centres like this. Centre Director Sylvia Pentis says that the new child-free workplace agreement should mean more government support for professional care by humans. Sylvia, what is it that you offer here that parents can't get anywhere else? What we offer is us. We're trained professionals, we've got qualifications, we've got experience. We can pick up on 
what the child is up to developmentally and go with that and, and support them, spend time with them and give them the caring and the love that they need as well as the education. Nearly all childcare centres are now owned by Baby Love International, the Shanghai-based multinational which has also invested heavily in Robbie's. Privatisation has meant a steep increase in childcare fees to maintain dividends to shareholders. Many centres now rely on volunteer parents like Mick to keep staff costs down. Yeah, <laughs> so, so what I'm doing now is um, it's kind of called free play, so we started over there and uh, whew, hang on. there it goes again. Could you put that on the bookshelf please? Thank you. Sylvia, can you tell me about that beeping noise, what it means and how it works in the system? Yep, I'll just show you on this little girl. Um, as you can see, there's a symbol of a, of a spoon on her inner wrist. and that, It's all right, darling. And it, basically it shows us that she's hungry because her sugar levels have gone down. Now, we have to respond to her within a certain amount of time, and if we don't, that gets counted against us. So there's you know, the spoon symbol, there's all of these other symbols that represent if the child is hot, if the child is cold, whether it has a temperature and things like that. What's wrong with kids telling you whether they're hot or cold or hungry, for God's sake? Childcare workers went on strike over the introduction of this tech monitoring system several years ago, but in the end you did agree to go along with it in centres. Why was that? Well, in the end, we agreed to go for it, but only for non-speaking children. Because the parents were using them at home, they felt more secure and felt, well, you know, we're using them at home, they're working there. You know, if you want us in your centres, that's what we're demanding that you use because we want for us to feel secure and for our child to be responded to as well as they responded to at home. And so with that in mind, we um, yeah, had to use them. And how well has it worked for you? Um, it's been a partial success. Like, first the government said, you know, we'll start with the monitors and we were OK with that, like, like I, I said before, but then it was the, the extension of that was bringing in more Robbies. Over the last half century, people in developed countries like Australia have outsourced more and more of the work of caring to others, first to low-paid workers and then to robots. For women, there have been definite benefits from this change. After all, it was women who were previously expected to care for elderly parents and young children. But according to Nancy Folbray, as more people have been allowed to abandon the work of caring, it's harder and harder for society to understand what caring is and why it matters so much. You know, some people say it doesn't matter that we can adapt to this more quote-unquote efficient system, but I don't think it's really that efficient, even though it's cheaper. Um, you know, the process of buying substitutes for care works up to a certain point, um, if people can minimize the amount of time they spend in drudgery, that's great. But when they start cutting back on the amount of time they really have to develop relationships with others who they care for, I think it really uh, can do a lot of harm. So commodification really can go too far, and I think in this case it has. <laughs> More than just a toy, for every girl and boy, here's Dino Robbie. <laughs> He's cool, he's special, and he's ready to play now. Robbie at all Kid World stores. Just because I'm the biological parent doesn't mean that I'm psychologically suited to living with my child. What do you mean? I don't need to spell out all my faults on national radio, thanks very much, but I can give you an example. I, I think that one of the really important qualities for looking after a child is patience, and it's something that I don't have a lot of. 
If we can afford a really good Robbie, it'll pretend to be a dinosaur or a train for several hours and it'll be up to Ange to ask the Robbie to move on. We don't have large families anymore where siblings used to be able to play together and, you know, we encourage Ange to have his friends over, but it doesn't always work. Now, if I move out, we can afford a decent Robbie and I, I really think that that would be positive for Ange. Children, time. I know that partly it's the Robbie thing that's driving Sue to go child-free. I mean, we'll be able to afford a really good one if she signs up. Um, she's happy with the centre. It's just some of our friends think that childcare is second best to being at home with a nanny and a Robbie. Why do they think that? They don't say. Oh, it's not out in the open. There's a kind of a no-go zone area when you become a parent. You suddenly have a right to make any kind of decision you like about your child. So if you question anybody else's parenting, then it sort of undermines their ultimate right for domination with their kids. That's, that's the way I see it. We all protect each other. I mean, I can't say giving a kid a top-of-the-range Robbie is like giving a kid a slave. I've just said it. But that's why I started to hang around here. I was sort of looking for solidarity. No, don't. Everybody come here, come oh. here, come here. Everybody come here to Sylvia. La, Why have childcare centres lost their popularity, do you think? There's a couple of reasons. One is the money and the other is the parents' need to control, to control what their child is learning, what their child is doing. And I think in that sense it... Um, takes away a bit of their guilt or makes them feel like a better parent because they're keeping them in the home environment and they know or they think they know exactly what is going on. And we even had a parent call us and say that her child won't be attending the centre anymore because her child has been getting too sick this year. And so um, to stop that, out of childcare it goes. You know, Don't worry about what it will get when it starts school in a few years. But basically the big change happened when... Um, we started getting expensive. So that goes back to the the money issue. As soon as we got expensive, we were seen as a business. So basically the children were the product and that's not what children are. No way. And I guess that's how they lost sight of what childcare is all about. It's about caring, not money. What happened to your voices? Check if they're there. Mine is being eaten by a big monster. If children are so valuable, then why aren't we prepared to pay for them? Nancy Fulbright. Well, people are not commodities, and so the work that we put into developing them and taking care of them is really hard to commodify. You know, think about who, who benefits from this activity. Well, first of all, it's the kids. Well, you can't really expect the kids to pay for it, and you know, it's not something that they can contract for ahead of time you know, to make a deal with their parents to put a certain amount of care into them in return for some future uh, payback. But, you know, children are not the only beneficiaries. The children grow up and they become taxpayers and they become workers and they become citizens. And everyone else in their society has a claim on some portion of what they produce. So employers are, are profiting from access to productive these productive workers. And the elderly are benefiting from the taxes that are levied on the working age generation. So there are these spillover effects, or what economists call positive externalities, because they're, they're external to that decision. That's not why parents put that work in, but that's a result 
of the commitments that they've made. So that's really why this care matters so much to the community as a whole and why we can't just stick a price tag on it and expect individuals to pay. Do you resent that you're being asked to live separately from your family to be able to maintain this lifestyle? I don't know about resent. It's not what I would ideally choose, but I mean, I can see my boss's point of view. I'm often really tired at work. I guess it's having a child. Maybe maybe it's just my age. I, I don't know. We have a house organising system, but I don't know who invents these things. No matter how many machines you have, the housework doesn't seem to get less. If we have more money, I can pay a cleaner or someone to take care of things, you know? And then I can be there for the family, like in a real sense. You know, that old idea, quality time. We can go places as a family, maybe even go overseas. And if I have to live away for some of the week, then maybe it's worth it. But don't children really want to be with someone who loves them? Well, he will be with someone who loves him, his father. And I'm going to be there every weekend, for God's sake. I mean, if I left my husband because we were at each other's throats, you'd be congratulating me. How is this really different to what men used to do? They'd go to work, you know, five days a week. They'd leave before the kids were up. They'd come home after the kids were in bed. I don't see that it's really that different. (laughs) So what's happened is that those women who felt that they had a choice have decided to join men in the the market economy, the priority economy, as it were. And um, they've just opted out of caring instead of trying to really change the the organization of caring itself to improve the rewards for caring. What's going on, guys? You guys need to be nice to each other. No pushing. That hurts. Look, look at all these other rocks you can stand on. You choose another rock to stand on, please. And you young men, come with me and we'll blow your nose. There's hardly anyone who wants to get into childcare. And the ones that do come out of university and, you know, love children and are looking forward to actually working in childcare, when they do, they just realise that it's hard work, that the hours are long. And the main thing, your focus, instead of focusing on children and their care, you're focusing on making a profit for the shareholders because without them and their money, you don't have a job. And so within that, you're also supporting families because there's less support out there for them. And when it comes to having a child of my own, Basically, I don't think that I can afford to be in childcare and raise a child as well. Why is it then that you don't want more Robbies in here to help you with some of the the less rewarding parts of the job? Well, we don't mind when they rake the sand pit and you know clean up after us and mop and that sort of thing. That's okay, but children really need hugs and kisses. They need the warmth in the voice. They need to know that they are loved and it is through love that they can grow and develop and want to learn more. Little woman. Little woman. Little cutie. How can a Robbie support a family when it can't have a conversation? It, it can't basically just mimics it, it can't take the lead so you know if, if I'd see a parent who's not as happy as what they usually would be I'd, appro- I'd approach them and say you know is everything all right and then you know they 
at least, you know, get a bit of the burden off their shoulders. And, you know, I could even explain to them, you know, the child's absolutely fine. What's happening at home isn't having a reaction at the centre and, you know, ease them a bit. A Robbie can't do that. But, um, look, we don't want parents to feel guilty about that because and, and, they are basically paying less by having Robbies here. But the thing is they need to understand that we've got feelings too and strong feelings about Robbies replacing us. Sylvia Pentis, director of the Baby Love Childcare Centre in Sydney's Sector 6. You know, caring labour is a particularly important form of work because it has a direct effect on our emotional well-being. And there's a tremendous amount of empirical evidence that relationships are actually much more important to people than things. For instance, surveys show that money has, uh, or income, has a much smaller effect on reported happiness than having a good family life or um, good relationships with friends. But we live in a society that really judges us by our ability to earn money income. And of course, it's a lot easier to measure our success by how much we have in the bank or how many cars we have in the garage. It's it's harder for us to be confident of our achievements in a more uh, personal and, a, and emotional realm. Also, we're often kind of urged to be very self-indulgent, to kind of follow our own personal vision and be self-interested. And we're assured that if we do that, the benefits will trickle down to other people. But that isn't always the case. Sometimes uh, there's more of a dribble-down effect where people do exactly what they want, but those below them just get kind of spat upon. I'm Morella Pitt. You're with Radio Eye on ABC's Radio National. In many ways, extending the child-free workplace agreement to parents seems like the logical way to balance the costs of caring with membership of the global professional elite, the work-rich, time-poor cosmocracy. But Sue Morgan is still trying to make up her mind whether to join. Well, I haven't decided yet whether to go through with it. Um, But the thing is, on a purely pragmatic level, we as a family need two incomes to survive if we want to live in this town. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Where you live, it's who you are. People like us who want to live in a nice, safe place with a large mortgage have to earn twice as much as people who live in, say, less cosmopolitan regions. Mick, how are you feeling about the possibility that Sue may go and live somewhere else for most of the time? I don't know. But, well, I mean, what can I do? <laughs> Refuse to let her see the kid? Um, what about what about Ange? How does he feel about it? Oh, he thinks it's good because he'll have more toys. What is caring for you? Oh, putting other people's interests ahead of my own, um, wanting to be with them, empathy, thinking about them. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be, but I, I think that after a while you tend to judge whether someone cares about you by the little things, like the everyday, ordinary things that people do or don't. I come home and I think, why am I living this life? 
Why not care for somebody else? Why her? <laughs> Look at this mess. You know, Mick has this real thing about bloody towels. He uses a new towel every time he has a shower and leaves it on the floor. She talks about quality time. I could easily work myself into the notion we might as well have no quality time. What does quality time mean? That there's a time in the week that doesn't need to be quality time? She might as well go and work 60 hours a week. I spend my whole time picking up wet towels. I mean, they go to the beach... They don't hang their towels up. I'm picking up toys and dirty clothes the whole time. If my friends say to me, what did you do on the weekend? I feel like saying, well, I picked up bloody things from the floor all weekend. You know, I I just feel like nobody cares about me. It's hard to believe, but in the mid-20th century, writers and philosophers imagined a future society in which technology would free us all up to lead creative, fulfilling lives. There'd be time to work, time to care and time to play. But as we know, things turned out very differently. People who work have little time, but all the rewards of status, money and a comfortable lifestyle, while the majority who don't work have little else but time. Economist Nancy Fulbray believes there was another way. We could have chosen to redistribute the costs and rewards of care, both emotionally and economically, across society as a whole. You know, we had this moment in the early 21st century. We really, we could have taken advantage of our prosperity to really develop a global economic community in which men and women had equal rights but also equal responsibilities. And we could have figured out a way to put less emphasis on money and professional success and more on real family and community values. We could have really increased public support for family and community work. We could have figured out ways to make it easier to reduce hours of paid work and enjoy more, a little bit more discretionary time rather than just trying to maximize family income. But we didn't do it. We really opted out. And, you know, the dilemma for us is that now that we live in a world that puts so little value on caring and we've, we've sort of lost the habit or the state of mind that goes along with Uh, that caring, will we ever be able to reclaim it? Will we ever be able to find ways to support it in sustainable ways in the future? This is ABC News. I'm Kerry Ross. Employers claim the extension of the child-free workplace agreement has been a boon to business and the national economy. An independent report released today says that workplaces offering the We're having a Christmas party and some of the families brought their instruments and we're having a bit of a jam session. And how are things going at the centre, Sylvia? Well, as you know, we agreed to the higher Robbie to carer ratio and that meant that we had to let some people go and that's a bit sad. But um, because of that, we've dropped our prices and now more people have picked up their places and I, I suppose that's a good thing for us. And, you know, Mick's still here. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, you know, I've taken a sort of uh, job... It's not quite what I'd hoped for, but, um, well, now that Andrew's starting school and the fees and the after school and, you know, all of those things, it kind of goes like that. (laughs) 
The Dribble-Down Effect, a mockumentary produced by Eurydice Aroni and engineered by John Jacobs for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. By the way, the main voice of authority in The Dribble-Down Effect, Nancy Fulber, is really a real authority. And she really did write the book, The Invisible Heart, Economics, and Family Values. The directors of the Third Coast Festival were so impressed by how well this story imitated reality that they gave it a special Director's Choice Award for Best Documentary in 2003. Even though some people wouldn't really define it technically as a documentary at all, but it does document greater truths. Are you confused? Well, good. Now we have you just where we want you. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Here's something we're always dead serious about. Mail. Send us some. Please? Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. This is NX3R coming back at 2X2L. As reception. As reception. Hey, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? A story is only as reliable as its teller. And when two people tell the same story, invariably, you get two different versions. And that's when the listening gets fun. By the very setup, you don't know who to believe. Everyone wants to sound credible. And in that gray area between fact and fiction, our ears perk up like a Doberman's. He said, she said, reality, invention, who cares? It's all in the telling. And we like it when the telling keeps you on your toes. Here's a love story, possibly true love, possibly false love. You don't know. But the one thing we are sure of is that it's an infectious web they weave. I'd just gotten back from uh, this conference in Chicago where I'd had a lot of fun. And uh, about a a week after I'd gotten back, I started having some problems. down below. It started hurting when I went to the bathroom, and I was always kind of concerned that my girlfriend would be cheating on me, or had been cheating on me. So I went to her live journal, and uh, I just started reading all her friends' pages. And she had this one friend who mentioned in one of his entries about how he had gonorrhea. And he was almost like bragging about it. And I got really freaked out, and I went right onto uh, onto WebMD. So I enter in my symptoms of drowsiness, headache. Headache and drowsiness. Discharge. Discharge. Urinary pain. 
and I click search and I get a full frontal of this woman with gonorrhea. And I just think to myself, oh my God, my life is over. I'm never going to be able to clo be close to anyone ever again. I just sat back in my chair and I, and I realized my life is over. It was pretty intense to be staring at this image. Um, and my eyes kind of naturally wandered away at the Google ads that were to the right. And the first thing really popped out at me. It said, you know, got an STD? We can help. Click here. And I clicked on it, and it was this amazing website. It was called IncurableRomantic.com. Incurable Romantic is uh, it's a lot like Friendster. Only in, in Incurable Romantic, the links are a little more telling. Uh, it was kind of like MySpace. Except it only had people with STDs. They have you know, 800,000 plus members. Um, over 25 STDs are represented. I'm thinking, like, wow, this is just a really nice online community of people like me. So I figure, you know, what the hell do I have to lose? It's free to sign up. So put in a username, Tom, password, all that stuff, and I have to fill out a profile. In order to do that, I have to answer a bunch of questions. Describe yourself. Tall, blonde, hazel eyes. I like movies. I'm blonde, you know, slender, blue-eyed. What are you looking for? I'm looking for a long-term, emotionally healthy relationship. Someone who's romantic, someone who's true to me. What's the maximum number of STDs that you'll accept in a partner? One. One was enough right now. Are you a risk-taker? No. No. When I finished answering all these questions, I hit submit, and then I got to a place where it said, uh, you can upload an image of yourself and, uh, you know, go for, like, the pro account for $89.95. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm done with Linda, so I decided to go for it. Pay the uh, $89.95. And then I start browsing. You know, when I uploaded a picture, I uploaded a picture of my face. I did a, a search. There was a little search you could do based on all the criteria that you would put in. And just one person came up. So I'm on, like, guy number four, who has, like, three STDs, when all of a sudden, an instant message pops up. After a few days, we had been instant messaging and talking on the phone and emailing back and forth. We decided to meet. I said, why don't we meet at the uh, TGIF um, right near my house. I arrive at TGIF. And uh, he's there, and he's very good-looking, um, and we have a few laughs, it's a little bit awkward. Um, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, wow, you know, this is my first date after I was so sad and depressed and thinking, you know, my life is over with this disease, and already things are going so well. But... When I met Jill at TGIF, it felt like someone had shoved a hot poker up my urethra. I really liked her, and I really wanted to make a good impression on her, but... I, I, I was totally blowing it. You know, I could tell that he was in a lot of pain throughout this date. I mean, he was going to the bathroom all the time, and he, at the end of every sentence that he spoke, it would just be like, eh. And so finally, you know, it was an uncomfortable subject, but we both realized we had to talk about, you know. And I asked him, you know, have you, have you seen anyone yet? And he said no. And, and I asked her if, if she had been to a doctor, and she said no. So we decided that why don't I go, and uh, and then we'll we'll have another day later on, and I can report back to her about what it's like. 
So besides Tom, I'd been getting a lot of email responses uh, as soon as I put up my profile. And, you know, most of them had more than one disease. They had two or three, or, you know, one guy had 20. But there was this one guy, Barry, and he just had herpes. And he seemed very handsome and nice. And he could only meet on the same night that I was meeting Tom. And so I kind of, you know, double booked them. I figured, you know, if things went really well with Tom, I could just cancel on Barry. I don't have to wait very long in the emergency room before the doctor comes to see me. And the doctor checks me out and says, this is a very severe case, why didn't you come in earlier? And I said, well, I really just wasn't psychologically ready yet. You know, I just discovered that I had the disease, and I was still coming to terms with the fact that I would be having it for the rest of my life. And the doctor looks at me and says, what are you talking about? Gonorrhea is curable. And I just was in total shock. I mean, it was, it was ecstatic. And he just sits down, writes me a prescription for contramoxazole, and I walk out of the hospital, free man. And of course, the first thing that comes into my mind is to call this this great girl that I just met, who I have this great connection with. So I'm sitting at TGIF with Barry, and we're hitting it off, and it's really great. You know, he's very good looking, uh, very funny. You know, it seems like he really knows how to deal with his disease, and it's very encouraging. And then my cell phone rings, and I have a text message. So I, I discreetly open up my phone, uh, and, I, and I read this message from Tom. And it says, G-O-N-H is curable, call me ASAP for real. <laughs> and I, just, I had no idea how to react. I just thought, you know, is, is this a joke? Is this some cruel, you know, did he go to the doctor and find out that he's dying? And in his last moments, he just like decides to totally jerk me around. So I excuse myself and I go to the bathroom and I give Tom a call. And, and I talk to him and he's like, no. You know, I, I have this prescription for contramoxazole, and you should come to the hospital right now and, and pick up the same prescription, and we'll be okay together. So I didn't know how to face Barry and his herpes out of the table, so I just climbed out the window and caught a cab to the hospital. After we left the hospital together, uh, we had this really romantic moment where we both took the contramoxazole together at the same time. And that's just one of those those magical moments that stay with you, you know? So I thought that this was some kind of sign, like, you know, we're really meant to be together. We're going through this crazy experience uh, together. But once the gonorrhea was gone, so was the spark. And uh, we're still together, but I think I need to see other people. I think she's the one for me. How little we know How much to discover What chemical forces flow From lover to lover How little we understand What touches off that tingle that sudden explosion when two tingles intermingle. Incurable Romantics. Produced by Benjamin Walker, Nick Vanderkolk, and Adrian Mathewitz for The Theory of Everything. We have a link to The Theory of Everything weekly podcast on our website. Go to the Resound page at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. 
I'm Gwen Maxon. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. As we come to the end of the show, we leave you with this idea. Maybe one of the reasons that we as producers, journalists, jokesters, what have you, are able to get so many things past you and make you believe them, whether it's an April Fool's piece, a Jason Blair news story, or a tale that never tells you whether it's true or not, like Eurydice's faux policy doc, or Gregory Whitehead's work, or Benjamin Walker's oeuvre, is because there are so many things in life that seem like they could be, should be, have to be fiction, but astonishingly, they are not. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, a show called Wife Swap, or Botox. I mean, really. Well, now we leave you with a short and macabre piece, a piece that only one person could dream up. Joe Frank, the king of walking the line. It's called Suicide Bridge. This is a favorite place to commit suicide because uh, this is where, before the water goes into the purification plant, the acid content of the water is very high, and when the body uh, hits the water, it dissolves on the contact. And so it's very painless, and uh, most of the people who want to commit suicide uh, jump up right here into Waterworks Gorge. The lines are very long, they're always very long. Sometimes people complain because the lines are so long and they have to live for so long before they can jump. Um, Sometimes people uh, leave and uh, uh, discover that they'd prefer to live while they're standing waiting. But most times people will wait because the idea of uh, ending it all is so exciting and important to them. And you see that uh, lady just uh, dived in. She did a double half gainer with a full twist. That's a very nice uh, last dive. That got good applause. Uh, many people have a special way of uh, ending it all, uh, making the final finale, uh, so to speak. Uh, they uh, practice and they conceive a special dive and everybody likes it and they applaud. And that makes everybody feel good before they go. See, then she goes into the water and she dissolves immediately. Suicide Bridge by Joe Frank featuring Tim Jerome. You can hear more of Joe Frank's dark, humorous, and absurd masterpieces, as well as find a link to his official website on the Resound page at thirdcoastfestival.org. Calling say kill. 2X2L calling say kill. 2X2L calling say kill New York. Is there anyone on the air? Is there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X2L. The spreading everywhere. Coming this way now. About 20 yards by You sit behind the wheel of your car for several minutes wondering whether it all really happened, and yet knowing that you have interacted with beings from another place. 
When you look at your watch, you realize over two hours have passed since you pulled off the road. Even though you're tired and confused, you know that you will remember this night, and that next time, you will remember everything much more clearly and more completely. You will remember. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover Smith. Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.